Today's episode is brought to you by Death Wish, Inc. For over 20 years, Death Wish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greek Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail Body, and more. Get 10% off all Death Wish music and merch in their store right now using the link deathwishinc.com slash the first ever which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for all items included again that is 10% off all deathwish releases and merch at deathwishinc.com slash the first ever if you haven't picked up the modern life is war tribulation work song seven inches volume one through three they're available right now and the third one features this cover of i want to be your dog Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 102, and I'm talking to Tim McElrath from the band Rise Against. Uh, Tim and I go back quite a ways at this point. Um, Rise Against was kind enough to take my band Touche Amore on tour twice. Once in Europe, and it was just such an unbelievable experience. That was our first time getting to do anything that big. And uh, let me tell you, it was terrifying. We were uh, there was some shows that were like in eighteen thousand cap arenas. Uh, we were were first of three. Us and the band Architects. It was uh, it was really really special. And then um, they took us out on tour in the U.S. I think it was maybe two years later. So. I owe a lot to Tim. He's always remained such an unbelievably sweet guy. As you'll hear in this interview, I really, really liked him. And um, I was excited that we got to do this. I mean, you know, this is episode 102. I've been doing the show for two years now. And uh, he's someone that I knew I wanted to talk to. And uh, here we are. So before we get there, though, I'd like to remind everybody and let any newcomer know that there is a bonus episode, which is available right now. If you head on over to the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where uh, Tim answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. It's a really fun episode. So check that out and check out all the other things we have going on over there. We got bonus uh, radio episodes every episode of the regular podcast has these bonus episodes. You can submit questions to upcoming guests. There's a Discord channel. I'm talking records pretty often. We uh, Maybe you don't know what you want to watch on, uh, on TV, on your old streaming services. Well, I every so often give out a big old list of uh, movie recommendations. That's just some of the fun you get when you subscribe to the Patreon. Okay, without further ado... Here is my conversation with the wonderful, the talented, the awesome Tim McElrath. What is up, Tim? How are you? Jeremy, it is so good to see your face, even in this online world. 
I know, right? I was uh it's been a it's been a really, really long time. Um it's always funny now that this show has been going on for for so long because um at this point now, because when I get hit up by a publicist to pitch me someone that I'm friends with, I always find that really <laughs> kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. so, so so getting like the hey, would you be interested in talking in talking to Tim from Rise Against? And I was like, Absolutely, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. I it didn't even occur to me that that's the way it all went down, but I'm happy that it is the that is the way it went down. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. Um we were just reminiscing for just a second before uh, before we decided to to maybe just save it for the old pod, as people say. But um right. we both just got back from Europe. So how so were you there just doing the festival run or were you playing headlining shows as well? A little bit of both. Uh we went for the festival run, so we had a lot of shows booked and then we filled in the gaps with some headline runs. So it was probably mostly fest and then maybe like five headline shows. Okay. It's how do you feel at this point cuz you've been doing it for so long about the European festival circuit because we've i mean we've now been doing it for you know for a number of years this is our first time obviously back doing it but mm. is it something that you enjoy like that you know at a festival for a day and then maybe a day off play a headlining show back to maybe two festivals in a row like are you used to it at this point do you enjoy, which do you prefer yeah so i guess i am used to it at this point so like it's pretty it's it can be pretty routine and I actually prefer that exact scenario you just described. I prefer that variety. Like if you do right. too many festivals in a row, you get like that festival burnout. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh my God, this is insane. I can't wait to play for my own fans somewhere, you know, like right. not at not in the middle of the day or whatever it is. Um, and not be in this crazy giant circus just for a minute, you know? <laughs> um, but and then, if, but if you play too many headline shows in a row, it's like that gets old too. You know, it's like, man, I would love to see more bands. I want to go play a show with White Snake in France somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's do that. You know, because that's fun. That's like, that's like off the beaten path of like things that you do. I want to go see people. I want to see like your face. I want to see your band. I want to meet up with people that we don't see very often and get to see their their band. And so, I love the festivals. I love the headline shows. I love the days off. And as long as there is a good variety of those things that's like an ideal way to tour in my opinion yeah and they're usually not very long like i mean we were only there for i think we played 10 shows and it was like mm -hmm. a total variety we did three festivals a couple small headlining like uk shows and then the last right. two shows were supporting thrice it was, oh, it right. was just like very all over the place um, yeah. but i'm totally with you and i always say like the festival run in europe is it's special in its own way because their their festivals are so eclectic to where like yeah it's like so different than the ones in the US like the i feel like oh, the yeah. big rock festivals in the US are very kind of straightforward it's like totally you yeah. know it, it's it's all just rock rock bands whereas like we've right. played festivals i'm sure you have as well in Europe where you're mm -hmm. like okay it's us the offspring bjork and snoop dog and somehow this <laughs> makes sense yeah and totally and like and your fans will be like singing along to snoop dog and snoop dog will be singing along to bjork and it's the strangest uh scenario it's like the the i feel like genre blurring is happening now more in the states but it's been happening in europe for a long time like the yeah. the kid in the mohawk who's watching our show is sticking around when they shut the club down and turn it into like a dance floor and he's still there you know what i mean like yeah. in his leather jacket 
And that, but except now he's like dancing to the DJ and he's, and he, to him, it's just like, yeah, it's music, man. Like I'm into it. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, what our bands have in common though, is that I can't even, I mean, we've, we've been through it a million times. I can't even imagine the billion times you've been through it where you maybe look, you're not maybe super prepped on what that show is that day. And then oh, you yeah, look at the lineup and you're like, I'm going to be murdered at this festival. Like we're playing <laughs> yeah. with between death metal bands. How yes. is this going to work? Oh my and God. then you, you get up on stage and you're like, Oh, it does work. Like everybody is just excited to be here. It's so true. Cause you get that fear, that pit in your stomach. where like, how did I end up on this show? Are we really playing in between Megadeth and Metallica in Poland this afternoon? You know what I mean? Right. Like, and what's going to happen if we do that? And then you start panicking. And then you're like, well, wait, maybe we should cater our set to like this crowd, maybe like pick the songs that are heavier or not as heavy, depending on what show you're at. And then when you get over that panic and you just do what you do, like you said, you realize no, they just, they just want to see you. They don't want to see a catered set to them. They don't want to. They already have Megadeth. They don't want more Megadeth. You know what I mean? They already have this band. They want, and in some ways, the shows you panic most about are the shows that you are the mostly the black sheep on that show. And But in my experience, those are the shows that are your strongest appearances because you're something different. So people actually come over and see you because they've been seeing the same thing all day. And they're like, oh, wait, those, let's go see that now thousand percent you're in a right. way you're the palate cleanser because you're like right. oh yeah, yeah. I, man one thousand right. percent like <laughs> i don't know what your stage at hellfest was but let me tell you about ours <laughs> it was us gbh uh the exploited uh discharge oh and my God. the band zabalba from out here who sound like sepultura and we then <laughs> us so we we're like all right we're not we're not in our like late fifties with Mohawks and we're not Sepultura. So not yet. Uh, I just like, it makes you want to be like, hi, we're touche more. And we're, and we're sorry. <laughs> I apologize for the next 30 minutes of your life. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it back safe. Was it, was your, was you didn't lose anything on the, uh, on the flights. I feel like all of us, all of our friends have lost gear. Like the, the airlines are just, not keeping track of stuff currently did you guys have luck uh for the most part i would say that lots went wrong behind the scenes i'm sure you guys can relate yes and every band i came across like we would just compare war stories and it seems like it's harder to tour now especially in europe than it ever has been and the way i've been describing that to people is like there's a finite amount of resources to support live music on the planet, you know, resources like trucks, buses, sprinters, you know, vans, drivers, crew, equipment that you're renting. That's a finite amount of resources. And that that amount has always been supported by the fact that most bands don't all tour at the same time. You know, it's like a like a run on the banks. You know what I mean? Like we all can't go get our money at the same time or it, the thing would fall apart. But this summer was the first summer Europe was really open. So we all went for the same resources at the same time. You know, we're not recording. We're not taking a year off. We're all we're all there in Europe trying to play a show. And that's when your bus prices went up. That's when your travel went up, your uh, equipment, your crew guys wanted more money, you know, all these things. Um, And some bands didn't even go to Europe because, you know, the travel expenses became more than what they were getting paid to go, you know. And so and and then the bands that did go like you or us. Um, 
what you found, and I'm sure what you found, it was like, even if you got your mode of transportation and you got your crew and you got your equipment, if anything went wrong, there was no backup plan. There was no backup None. sprinter coming, no backup driver coming. There's no backup marshal head coming. You know, there's no other flight going out. You know, like we had flat tires and food poisoning and border troubles. Oh. And every, I fell off a stage in Budapest and just like oh, cracked no. a rib. You know, it was like totally my fault, by the way. Um, it was, and it was, I can laugh at it now. <laughs> there's a, if you're looking for it, there's a video online. I recommend you see it and laugh your <laughs> ass off because it's pretty good. <laughs> oh no. But, um, yeah, so, but I will say, so I'm sure you, you have similar war stories. Like so much went wrong behind the scenes, but there was something that got us through it. And I think it was pr- partially just like, it's been four years since we've been there. Um, this appreciation of being there, of just playing live music of actually going across overseas to play shows, especially considering there was a time during the pandemic where we weren't sure if that was ever going to happen again. And so everybody sort of, you know, took it on the chin and was like, what would, but what might have been big problems four years ago, all of a sudden we're put into perspective and was like, yeah, it's a flat tire. Let's get some cabs. Let's go to the airport. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, Tim fell off the stage. Walk it off, Tim. <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah, it's it's food poisoning. We'll deal with it. Oh, it's the border. We'll borrow Bad Religions gear and we'll play a show. You know what I mean? It was like things like that. It was like everybody, the crew was like just in good spirits. Everybody kind of rose to the occasion. Uh, well, you couldn't have said it better. That was exactly it. And like that, when we got to the to Manchester, that was the deal where it was like uh elliot sticks and like show like show clothes like the last thing that wants to get lost where it's like oh my god right, that right. thing <laughs> that's it's kind of a chemical weapon that it just got lost at the airport um but but uh yeah it's like you know we showed up to the fest and as we know for drummers like like the most taboo thing you could ever ask another drummer for is like cymbal snare or sticks yeah and, right. and like we showed up and the guys in uh this van vein that we had just toured the u.s with they're like oh yeah they're like i got you here they're like here, you can use all of our sticks we're gonna give you uh you know we're gonna we're gonna make this shirt sleeveless and you're just gonna be your show shirt like we got <laughs> you like anything you need we That's got so you awesome. so the camaraderie was really felt but i mean like we pulled up to the hotel and we saw the guys in ceremony who were like oh yeah all of our gear didn't arrive like no it's, it's all lost yeah oh, like that's they have crazy. like and they use a keytar they're like that's we <laughs> not playing those not playing that song like dude just, that's insane that's yeah that's, i was, was just talking to uh chris number two from anti-flag and their yep. first day of their european tour was hellfest on that Warzone stage and they were on very late like midnight or 1 a.m and everything went wrong with their travel to get there um to the point where they had to take like trains and they had to drive to different airports in the states and then only get so close to the hellfest and take more trains everyone was spread out and in the end if i'm getting this right if i remember chris telling me uh like none of they showed up at hellfest with none of their crew and just like some of their gear an hour before their set time and they somehow like they somehow pulled it off like playing and pretty much headlining, I think, that war zone stage with just like the four of them and like oh. whatever local hands like get to start setting things up. And they played a damn show that night. It was crazy. I mean, it's it's a uh, it speaks volumes to the worlds that we all came from, that we yeah. know how to hustle to make things work. Like like all of our bands came from the the if you if you ever existed in a DIY world 
like right. putting in put into any sort of larger circumstance like you have that capability built into you to be like okay totally. shit sucks we're gonna make it work whereas right. like you know i have to imagine for a band that maybe didn't have that as an upbringing yeah it's just not possible you know right. so I, so as much as those years were probably really tough for a lot of us um mm-hmm. you know they still they they taught us how to survive in so many different it, ways right yeah like you yeah you get on you get on stage somehow yeah. you make it work that's like you're like nobody ever thinks like oh let's just cancel the night no it's like we have to exhaust every possibility yes. to somehow make music even if it's just our bass player in a kazoo but something's <laughs> gonna happen tonight <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah at one one thousand percent um yeah. i guess that's a good segue because this show's all okay. about first experiences and we could, we right. could get into that stuff um totally. so I, it's something i didn't realize i was just i just put you as chicago but you were actually born in indianapolis yeah but i can't really claim it i was there for like my birthplace was there but my parents are from chicago my dad was in the army and they just okay. were waiting for me to be born and then they pretty much moved back to chicago as soon as i was born i was their third okay. kid so um that said like they made such good friends with their neighbors down there that throughout my childhood we would visit indianapolis like for weekends and and they i have a little brother and there were three boys in their house so it was the perfect kind of like just two families just like all mashed together we'd sleep over at their house um and so i i feel like i i grew up with a connection to indianapolis because I spent a long, t- a lot of time in like the Broad Ripple neighborhood, and in fact, where I got that 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 kid from that house, his name is Jeff. That's my, where I got my first guitar. It was like in the back of his closet. He'd given up on it, and like, oh, wow. I was like, what? I was like, dude, what is that? And he was like, oh, I don't, I I tried to learn, but I didn't learn. And I'm like, I'll buy it from you for thirty dollars. And he was like, yeah, let's do it, you know. And so that was my first uh, guitar. So, but yeah, so Indiana. Yeah. I'm mostly I'm I'm born Hoosier. But I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I was raised up here in Chicago, so. Fair enough, fair enough. So uh, when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Something that maybe, maybe the parents weren't playing in the house, but something that like you discovered on your own and made you feel like you had maybe your own kind of identity for the first time? Well, that's a good question. It must have been like metal, I would say, because... My parents were actually didn't listen to music very much. We went on road mm. trips and my parents had two cassettes. One was Bill Cosby himself. The other was Don McLean's uh, American Pie. You know, so that, and we would listen to those. Oh, and, oh, I'm sorry. And Kenny Rogers' greatest hits too. And so amazing. those three those three got played. But other than that, there really wasn't music in my house, you know. Um, and I had two older sisters. So they got into like uh, hair metal. You know, this would have been like the 80s, you know, and and then they got into a little bit of like Depeche Mode and Tears for Fears and like stuff like that. And so the first stuff that I was hearing was some of the heavier of the hair metal, probably like Motley Crue or Guns N' Roses. Like that stuff started to appeal to me. And then like I, I met some of the metal kids at my school and I went to a small Catholic school. And so there weren't a lot of us there. I went to school with the same like 45 kids for like eight years, you know, and right. but we started discovering things like Metallica and Iron Maiden and Slayer and some of the heavier uh, metal stuff. And so that was probably the first thing that felt like this wasn't my parents. It wasn't my sisters. They don't listen to Metallica, but like, I remember like listening to like ride the lightning, like all the time and discovering master of puppets and injustice brawl. And then that kind of spider web, like I wanted to know who the bands were on their t-shirts, you know, like, you know, if they're wearing a Danzig shirt or a misfits shirt, I wanted to know the band, like, gbh you know like 
all that stuff that they were rocking or the cover songs that they were doing um during the garage days stuff you know i had to know all those yeah. bands too and so it was that that journey you know and then i started there was like a we, we could get some college radio where i lived in chicago and so i would record some shows you know like we had there was a show called vvx that i remember recording the metal stuff and and then I would listen back and the DJ would say the names of the bands and then we'd probably go to the record store or do like Columbia House where you buy 12 records for like a penny or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> and just try to get as much music as possible because just getting music was difficult, especially music that wasn't on the radio. A thousand percent. And there's a thing probably uh, where with being a part of the private school system, especially like a Catholic school system, that mm. listening to something so aggressive, something that is like seemingly like scary or off limits was pro probably added an extra level of kind oh, of yeah. fun and danger to listening to that stuff. Totally. Yeah. Like, you know, the t those metal t-shirts weren't allowed in our school. You know what I mean? Like having hair to your collar wasn't allowed at the school. And so, but in a way that almost like empowered us because we, we knew we were pushing boundaries a little bit. So it made us want to do it even more but and i wore a uniform to school every day for from like kindergarten to eighth grade you know and yeah only on weekends or after school could i wear what i wanted so that kind of like neutered your identity a little bit you know you were just kind right. of all um you were kind of all the same that was hard to express yourself and so but i had a good crew of like me and like two other guys and we were sort of on this journey to like discover music and that's when we started getting into different stuff and then my best friend had an older sister uh, who she started getting into like alternative college rock type stuff and so she would try to pass she was more like jesus and mary chain and my bloody valentine which was cool and then but when she found heavier stuff she'd pass it to her little brother like oh you might like helmet you might like Rollins band you might like fugazi you might like you know minor threat and all this stuff and we started really getting into that and he would just come over to the house like dude you've got to hear this record 13 songs oh my god you know and that stuff would just blow my mind and this was all a little bit pre-nirvana you know also so like all those bands hadn't quite hit like um you know the wires the way they did in a post-nirvana world and then i remember going to like a summer camp and i was i knew a little bit about peg boy i knew a little bit about you know the subhumans and minor threat and black flag and an older counselor found out that i knew a little bit about it and he was like okay dude i'm gonna make you a mixtape and you're gonna know a lot about it before you leave here and he kind of just wow. schooled me on all this stuff. So I had a, I had a mixtape. I remember his name was Jim Chambers because I wrote the Jim Chambers mixtape, and he really taught me a lot about. He just like there was, I think Jawbreaker was on it, Fugazi was on it, Minor Threat was on it, Screeching Weasel was on it, um, Subhumans were on it, uh, Social Distortion was on it. You know, so like it was really just like this holy grail of music. You know that I just walked away with, and that was probably my summer of my seventh grade, maybe into Holy eighth grade shit. yeah and so that was like blowing my mind you know what i mean i needed to know more about it and this was in a pre-internet world so you're just like you're on this journey to, to know more about it and then we're getting into skateboarding and that kind of stuff too so like that whole thing when i got by the time i got to high school i was way into it and that's when i found the other kids that have been living in my neighborhood forever but i just went to school with the same silo of like 40 kids you know for so long there's something really special about you getting all of that stuff when you were that specific age um it's come up a few times on the show but it's like i feel like when you're in that junior high sort of age range you're a lot more open-minded to kind of yeah. everything to where right. like i th i think when you're a little older you feel like you have to belong to a specific tribe like you're like oh i'm a punk i only listen to punk right. but like 
that era of the junior high, it's like, yeah, you, within the same year, you could be loving Guns N' Roses and Metallica, but also wow. thinking that Fugazi is the coolest thing you've ever heard in your life. And totally, boy, could they couldn't be more, you know, different in a lot, in a lot, right. I mean, especially Guns N' Roses to to Fugazi, just like right, right, you know, politically and everything. So right. it's it's yeah. really cool that you that you found all that stuff at that at that same era. Um, it's funny you mentioning looking at Metallica and seeing their shirts and then making you want to dive into it. I remember specifically yeah. the same thing, where the first time I ever saw the Crimson Skull was on one of their T shirts, you know. And I remember right. the first time listening to the Misfits and being like, "This isn't metal. This is like right. goofy <laughs> operatic shit. Like I don't get it." So, right. like you look at the Crimson Skull and you think it's going to be a death metal band when you're young, and then you hear it and totally. you're like, "Huh?" But right, yeah, it took yeah. it took me until much later to kind of understand that. But uh, I always have that memory. But um, absolutely, those guys were kind of so, punks, you know. Yeah, like even yeah, even Guns N' Roses. Look at like you know the Spaghetti Incident album. And look right. at the track listing and see the bands like when given a choice to cover any band in the world, look at the bands they covered like Fear. You know what I mean? Like, like UK subs the, and yeah, UK like, sub, those were the bands that Guns N' Roses were into, you know? And so, right. yeah, I always saw, so I always had a love. I still have a love for like, you know, Appetite for Destruction and those old records, you know, um, will, will always be important to me. But yeah, I was getting into punk and that kind of thing. And then I started, you know, trying to find the records. And I would find like old SST ads in the back of like magazines sometimes. And I'm like, okay, this is how I got to get this stuff. And I remember sending cash to SST to get my six pack seven inch. You know what I mean? And then I remember thinking like, this is rad. I'm going to send cash and get a black flag hat. And I remember getting like a black flag hat. And like, so when I went to high school, I went to high school wearing like a black flag hat. And like that hat alone is how I connected with so many people. You know what I mean? Cause like, I, I mean, I literally had a, a senior in like a leather jacket, shaved head, walk up to me and he goes, hey, how come you're wearing a black flag hat and I don't know who you are? <laughs> you know, that's what that's what he said to me, like, you know, my first my freshman year. And I was like, uh, hi, I'm Tim. Like, what's up? I'm Brian. You know, and like we became friends because of that. He stopped me in the hallway and he was like, if you're wearing that hat, we have to be friends. That's kind of what it was like. You know, I went to high school. My first year was I think it was 92, 93 or maybe 93, 94, I don't remember exactly. But like, um, it was the kind of thing where music was still so underground where if you saw somebody in like a Dinosaur Junior t-shirt, you stopped them. You're like, yo, cool shirt, let's be friends. Because you were the only right. two in like a town that had that. If you saw somebody holding a skateboard, it was like, hey, what's up? And it was like, you were immediately connected. You know, like it, the world's changed a little bit in that way. But like back then it was so underground and so hard to come by that you were immediately part of this like secret tribe. If you had any sort of indication, you know, that you, that you were a part of that tribe. Absolutely. You, Cause you're also thriving for anyone to connect with at the same Absolutely. time. You're in that age group where you're like the more friends, the better, the more people to connect with, the more people to potentially give you a ride to the show. All of those things are, right. are very important. It, it almost reminds me of uh, this thing that I feel like still happens to where even if, if we're on tour, then we pull into a gas station in the middle of nowhere and then another right. like Ford E350 pulls into the gas station and you start sniffing each other out like, it, right. you're, like you're both at the, you're both at the yeah. playground you're like totally. who is what 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 yeah yeah, yeah. where's what's that license plate where's that from <laughs> you know you start trying to figure it out and a bit you know that kind of a thing that's but, that's um, me at like uh that's me at like baggage claim when i see somebody in a flight case <laughs> i'm like wait hold on yeah. who's what? that 
Well, yeah, yeah. Who else is here in Chicago landing right now? What's going on here? <laughs> you know, high, high school is interesting for me too because um, I was some of the first like people in the punk and hardcore community that I met were disproportionately female. So like there was this whole crew of like riot girls that were in the early early nineties that were in my high school, and it just happened to be this whole crew that was there. And they kind of like took me under their wing, like before, like the bros took me under their wing, like they got to me That's first, sick. you know? And so all of a sudden it's bikini kill, it's heavens to Betsy, it's team Dresh, it's heavenly. It's all the stuff where I'm like, Whoa, I never, I didn't know what this kill rock stars stuff, you know, like I didn't know what any of the stuff was. And so that stuff was, that stuff was fed to me at the same time. Some of the more aggro black flag monitor was fed to me. And so I always had an affinity towards, uh, what they were into. Like that music was always really uh, important to me too. That's awesome. And I'm sure it helped also build such a strong foundation of the things that, you know, were have become and were always very prevalent for what Rise Against has sung about, you know, like the, the feminine, uh, the feminist aspect of things, like all of, all of that, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. That you had that like super early on. Yeah, I, I feel like I, it's it's probably not. It's, it's like I say, I use the word disproportionate because it's always been like my world. It's always been like from the from that crew of riot girls that like adopted me to having like two older sisters to like at one point the entire Rise Against team, like our agents, management, lawyers, label, were a hundred percent female. Like for like ten years, so everyone who like like helps run this band has always been uh, a woman. You know, there's, there's like there's a minority of men that help run this band, and so I feel like that's been part of who we are you know what i mean and, and what we do like if i get a phone call about a show or whatever like it's always a woman on the other end of that line you know what i mean it's that's, that's who awesome. i talk to you know and especially right. in the la world where dudes can be such schmucks anyway you know what i mean like if just uh -huh. we just kind of trusted our instincts to to go with that and it's really it's been um it's been a really cool way to navigate through this industry that which is predominantly male Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Well, let me ask you this. What was the first concert that you went to then? The first concert that I remember going to, and this was a this was a big one. It was because it was the uh what have been the fall of my freshman year of high school. And I went and saw Nirvana at the Aragon Ballroom with Mud Honey supporting. And then because the opening band had canceled, 
Jawbreaker was called in to open oh, the show. Oh shit, it was that tour. It was that tour. Cuz I think Jawbreaker oh only God. played like maybe 5 of those days or whatever. Yeah. And so and I, and I already knew a little bit of Jawbreaker from my Jim Chambers mixtape, you know? Yeah. And seeing that show was like obviously just mind-blowing. So Oh my God, what a flex. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm like it was it was amazing. And I still think about it because Every time we play the Aragon Ballroom, I think about that show for sure. Yeah. I think about the dress when I'm in the dressing room, I think like this is where Nirvana was hanging out at. And then interesting enough, that show was pretty documented because I think David Fricky from Rolling Stone came and did a piece on Nirvana, but he did it there at the Aragon. And so you can read like an article of like that David Fricky wrote um from the backstage of the Aragon Ballroom. So he's talking Holy about shit. the dressing room. He's talking about Courtney being there. He's talking about Francis being like what was there in the room, you know? And so like it's this, it's this really well documented evening. They played two nights at Aragon. Um, and it was such a cool show. And I also fell in love with Jawbreaker that night. You know, I remember I remember hearing Jawbreaker records before seeing them. And I only had them on on, on blank tapes. I didn't have it on their records. So I didn't even know how many members were in the band or who was doing what, yeah. you know. I remember being shocked there were only three guys, you know, because like you hear those, <laughs> you hear records like Bivouac and you're like, this sounds like an army of guitars, you know, totally. and I was like, wait, Jawbreaker is three people like what the hell, you know, right. it was, oh. it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Uh, it's wild that that, you know, now that's it's, it's coming together because uh, we were so flattered and, and happy to, to play with you guys at the Aragon uh a, you know obviously like i think it was like 2014 that and the yeah. Lawrence arms played it and, and rad yeah. and everything but like right. and i think i think if, if i remember correctly what was in my head was like oh i know that nirvana played here like anytime you play yeah. a venue whether it's in europe so, or or whatever yeah. it's like it's exciting because it's history that a venue has been around that long still that still exists so, yeah you know mm -hmm. um but then anytime you find out, it's like, oh, yeah, you could watch footage of Nirvana playing here and the stage is still the same or like it still feels totally. the same in here. Um, that's that's yeah, that's where, I, that's where I grew up going to see my big show. So I saw Rage Against the Machine play in there. I saw like Rollins Band play in there. Um, I used to go to a lot of industrial shows like KMFDM and Ministry. That stuff was big in Chicago. And so like you couldn't avoid it. And I, and I loved it. Um, so <laughs> Speaking were, of ministry, it was <laughs> in the most Europe shit ever. As soon as we walked uh, out of the hotel after we had landed that day to go, because I, I don't know if you were probably staying in the same area right next to the hotel there for for Hellfest. Uh, okay. But but yeah, as soon as we walked out to like go try to find some kind of food, Al Jorgensen was outside and asked to bum a cigarette. <laughs> I was like, it's like <laughs> we're officially here, baby. This That's. Amazing. That's that's yeah. I that's why that's why I love Europe. Like yeah. during festival season because it's so. We got off the bus one day to get into the hotel and like Iggy Pop was just standing there. He was <sighs> like, "Oh, hello, Iggy Pop." You know, or it's funny. We like Zach saw Al Jurgensen walking around Barcelona. You know, which and like Al Jurgensen can't hide anywhere. No, <laughs> I mean like he's <laughs> very apparent that Al Jurgensen is walking by. Um, or when yep. we 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 did our rehearsals in uh, Dortmund in Germany. And Manowar was staying in the same hotel as us too. And so we were like, oh wait, we have to go find Manowar. So it's just that's the randomness, right? Of that's the randomness of Europe. Like you don't know who you're gonna run into. Like 
around that time. thousand percent. I always describe it to people too, where I'm like, what's so sick about that stuff, especially the, fe- specifically the festivals, is that like the catering area isn't divided. It's like every, if you're hungry, right. It I don't care if you're the most famous person, like you're eating in the mm-hmm. catering area, catering area. Totally. Like, like we've played Coachella a long time ago and it's like, they keep those headliners so far away from us scumbags that like, right 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 yeah it's so it's so like true. yeah i remember uh, like just like sitting across from like gavin rosdale and then just like we both cleared our plates at the same time and i was like fuck it i'm gonna talk to gavin rosdale the nicest guy so <laughs> he's I, I just i sat across from a catering at nova rock in austria and it was like he's a like we talked a few times he's a super nice dude you know what i mean yeah he's got chris got chris trainer from like helen went in the band too like they're a, they're a cool heavy band you know right I'm, he was yeah. wearing like a big ass sleeveless shirt and i was just like yeah. i was like how have you not aged like you're still like the I sexiest know. dude i've ever seen in my i know life. you're ridiculously beautiful and you're making us all look bad would you please <laughs> yeah. just cut cut it out man <laughs> um so uh the next question i usually ask is first instrument you just you said you got it from this friend in indianapolis you bought it from him yeah uh mm-hmm. so the first instrument was guitar though that was the first thing you ever played yeah. Yeah, I took like sort of the gratuitous like two years of piano as a kid because we had a piano in the house, but I never took to it. Um, and that was it. And then and then I was done doing like formal instruments. And then when I got into like music and punk and hardcore, everything, I was like, I want to learn how to play guitar. And this guitar kind of fell in my lap. And then I, I shortly after that, I, I bought a 1982 Gibson SG um, for $425, probably in like 92, 93 um and actually i still play that guitar on stage like to this day so wow it, it was yeah it was like dormant for a while i just happened into like a really nice guitar for like 400 bucks by the way you know it was like amazing right. um i remember at that time in my life my friends who we were all skating and they were starting to get into snowboarding and i was like okay i'll be a snowboarder with you but that was a really expensive thing to get into you know sure and so i remember saving up about 500 bucks and I was like, okay, I can go get a, a snowboard and maybe have some money for lift tickets and whatever. And I still had that. I still had my friend's guitar that I bought for 30 bucks, but it was a pretty crappy guitar. And I remember going and shopping for a snowboard with my parents because I wasn't driving at this point and picking one out and then being like, all right, we'll come back tomorrow. And, you know, after you think about it, we'll get it. And I was like, all right, cool. And then I was like, hey, can we, as long as you're driving me around, can we stop and get guitar strings at this guitar store? Because I need new strings. And they're like, yeah, of course. And so we stop in and there it is like this beautiful 82, like mint condition Gibson SG, you know, it looks just like the one Ian McKay is playing, you know, and it's 420. It's it's like, it's about the same amount of money I had saved up. And I was like, oh man, what do I do here? And I, and I bought the guitar. I never bought a snowboard and I've never gone snowboarding in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's it was a like a crossroads. I've never heard one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was definitely like, yeah. I could have just bought the snowboard and I would have been broke and I would have crappy guitar and who knows what, what would have happened. But like, the yeah, guitar what would your is still, life, still with me. What would your I life know. have been had you snowboarded? I know. I know, right? I'm, prob- I'm growing up in Chicago. I'm, I probably wouldn't have been that good. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you remember? Uh, well, well, let me ask you this. Did you take lessons or did you have friends kind of teaching you how to do stuff? Like, what would, how did that go? I remember like thinking I should take a lesson. Um, and so I went to a guy like in a strip mall, he was like this metalhead dude and I met with him and he's like, listen, just bring in a record. Tell me what you want to learn how to play. Let's just do that. I'm not going to go through all this stuff with you. And I was like, that sounds awesome. 
So I brought in Minor Threats discography and I said, show me how to do this. And he was like, what? And he's like this Hessian metal guy, like, you know, waiting for me to learn a Steve Vai solo or something. And he's like, dude, that's, he's like, that's just this. Like, he's showing me a power chord. And I was like, oh, cool. I don't need you anymore. And I never went back. <laughs> so I was like, I know what a power chord is and I can play filler. So this is rad, you know? And then I never, I took a lesson again. <laughs> I'll bet that was such a bummer for that guy to be like, oh no, this is, I'm not going to get a lot of money from this kid. <laughs> like, yeah, right. This Just is a one and done. One. Yeah. Yeah. His, oh. his guitar hero is Lyle Preslar, you know, like, oops. Right. <laughs> no. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, that's so funny. Um, I'm sure he had a life of that going forward too, especially if that guy was still teaching guitar in like the early 90s where it was like, yeah. as soon as Nirvana came out and he was like, oh, God damn it. Yeah. I think his life probably changed pretty, pretty quickly. You're right. <laughs> um, so was filler like one of the first songs you learned how to play? Yeah, probably I would say. Yeah. And I, I eventually actually would go, I learned so many minor threat songs that when we would, if I had friends, we would just play them because we knew how to play them. And some were, we got so, uh, good enough at them that people started inviting us to play parties as like a, a minor threat cover band, you know? Yeah. And that was like, that was my first experience of like, people getting into you performing you know what i mean and i was doing that by cheating because i was playing somebody else's song so they were getting in, they weren't getting into me they were getting into a minor threat song but like the experience was like you know watching this visceral reaction in the audience in front of you when you cracked into like in my eyes was like whoa this must be fun if you could do it with your own song you know yeah. like, that would be amazing so our band was called the stepping stones and we played like a few a few parties here and there with like minor threat covers and that kind of thing which is uh, funny because full circle, uh, I don't know if it was the last time I saw you, but one of the last times we hung was when you played a birthday party doing covers and I sang a minor <laughs> threat song with you. Totally. <laughs> right. So basically, I'm still 15 years old is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Trying to get people trying to get people like Jeremy to play minor threat songs with me. <laughs> that was what fun. One of my favorite moments of that night was, uh, was which I know is, is there's footage of that party, but when Moby sang with you guys, yeah. and he had the, he was holding lyrics, he like had to have the lyrics in his hand for it. Right, right. <laughs> but I I don't know fucking Moby. I've never met this man before, and he's standing right. next to me. What and we're watching whomever played or sang with you before it because it was a fun night. You guys were doing a bunch yeah. of different covers and a bunch of different friends right. were hopping on and singing. But I'm standing, it was just such a funny, surreal moment where I'm like standing next to Moby, watching you guys do these covers. Uh, you've invited me to sing with you. I'm kind of nervous because I'm like, oh, I hope this goes okay. And then mm -hmm. Moby has to flex on me super hard. He goes, he goes, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed holding these lyrics, but especially because I, you know, I bought the first seven inch right when it came out back in you know, 1980. <laughs> and I'm just like... I'm like, dog, you can flex on me all you want, but you're still holding the lyrics. <laughs> it was awesome. It was awesome. It, it was, was such yeah. a trip. It was such was a trip. A, that was a fun night. I remember, I think we did like, um, we, we were trying to figure out that night and who was going to come and if it would be any fun, like you were there. So we're like, let's get, let's yeah. go up Jeremy. And, and I remember thinking we were making the set list and somebody wanted to play like, I think we played a Youth of Today song or something maybe. Yeah. With and. I think Sam did Sam, well, Sam so, play drums. So he, yeah. Yeah. So here's, so here's the story was like, we were playing the youth of today song and everyone agreed to do it. But then Brandon was like our drummer. He was kind of like, you know what? I'm, I'm not super familiar with that song. So I'm not super comfortable, you know, playing it. And we're like, well, 
maybe we can get somebody else to play drums <laughs> on that song. And I remember turning to like somebody else who was going to be at the party. I was like, you know anybody who could play drums on this Youth Today song? And they're like, well, Sammy's going to be there, you know? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Here we are just racking our brain for a drummer. You know what I mean? And how embarrassing if we would have not found that out and just oh pulled God. in like just anybody to play drums and having Sammy be like, uh, hi, over here. I'm yeah. I'm right here. I'm right uh -huh. here. <laughs> oh, my God. How incredible. How incredible. Dude, we had no idea he was going to be there. And we were sitting there trying to figure out who's going to play drums. So it worked out perfect. So that's incredible. Yeah. yeah, that was a really fun night. I was I was very uh, excited to have been invited. I felt because I, I also didn't know the people whose birthdays it was. It was like it was one of those things where I, between you and then like another mutual friend being like, hey, you should come to this birthday party. And then I met them that night. The the people whose birthday was they were super sweet. Right. I've seen them since all of that. But man, yeah. what a what a, a great night, though. Great night all, Dude, it was one, all it was one of those things that, that like should not have come together and somehow it all through a number of circumstances at all because it was the, our tour had ended you know what i mean and so right. we somehow convinced we convinced like everything from like the bus to the truck to the crew to stick around for one more day <laughs> to play to play this skate park <laughs> you know right like please yeah and everyone was like all right we'll do it you know what i mean and it was and then in the end it was the most fun night of the of the run probably absolutely um, so you just mentioned, uh, the stepping stones. So was that your first band? Kinda. I, I was playing with friends around that time. We had a band that we had called office boy, <laughs> <laughs> um, as high school band names go. Of course. And we were, you know, we were just figuring it out. It was a drummer and I was learning how to play guitar. We were all learning our instruments together, you know, and sure. then a bass player. And, but we all, but we had a pretty good knack for like, you know putting songs together and then that band never really went on to do anything but it morphed into my more permanent high school band which was a band called baxter and then baxter was uh what the band i did um all through high school and a little bit beyond high school and um people will know neil hennessy from the lawrence arms who's also in joyce manor uh nowadays right. and is also filling in sparta right now as well oh, so i didn't know a, that he's a busy busy dude yeah i don't think he's their permanent guy but he's he's filling in i don't know the whole story but he's been doing shows with them um but me and neil grew up together we kind of taught each other how to play our instruments we were we played a lot of our first shows together and neil is a, a drummer was a drummer first but he was always really good at guitar and so he played guitar in my band baxter uh, along with another one of my best friends jay who played bass and another guy named tim who played drums and that was that was my musical endeavor, you you know, through my adolescence. You know, that's what that's where I got all my chops. Right. Basically. Wow. I didn't uh, I didn't think I realized that Neil played guitar in that band. I thought I just assumed Neil was the drummer. Yeah, people think of him as a drummer because that's kind of when he came up in the Lawrence Arms. But like you know, and I when I met him, he was a drummer, um, and, and I tried to get him to play drums in my band. But then this other guy, Tim, came back into the fold, who was also a drummer. But we liked Neil so much. So we're like, we could use a second guitar player. He's like, yeah. And so he was, I think he was kind of learning how to play at that point. But he's just such a good um, musician all around that he figured it out really quick. And then that's what I did, you know, through like the my formative years. Spent a lot of time playing with those three dudes. Um, before we hop into Baxter real quick, was uh, what was the first show? You mentioned playing shows that were like you were doing like minor threat covers and stuff. Do you remember the first mm -hmm. show you ever played and what that was? Oh yeah, it was well. It was with that Office Boy band in the okay. basement 
of some guy's house in Rolling Meadows, Illinois, just outside of my high school. And like, I mean, we, I, I didn't even have a driver's license. You know what I mean? I was 15. Everyone was kind of making fun of us because we were so young. And again, again, we were these little kids that had been kind of adopted by these riot girls and these older punks in the high school. But like, we were definitely like the freshman class of like punk, you know what I mean? So like they were, we were still just like low on the totem pole. The fact that we had a band was cute and adorable to people. You know what I mean? They didn't take it seriously. And I remember playing, you know, for like a 20 minute set of songs we wrote and everyone being like, whoa, that was not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to (laughs) be. You know, I don't think anybody really loved it, but they were just kind of like, wow, you, you strung together a verse on a chorus. Like, yeah, that's pretty impressive. You know, like, yeah, we're thinking, oh, this is, this is a lot of fun. Like I could, I want to keep doing this. Were you singing and playing guitar? Yeah, I was singing and playing guitar. Okay. So that, were you, did that come kind of naturally to you? Like the, the ability to do both at the same time? You know, it was out of necessity. I never saw myself as a singer. Being a singer or a frontman seemed like such an ambitious like role. It was not my personality to be that, you know? But I was so desperate to create music that I didn't want to wait around for this. I didn't want to wait around to meet Gavin Rossdale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I wanted, I, but I kind of thought I would. I thought one day I'll meet like this great person who can front this band and I'll just be in the background playing guitar. And that never happened. I never met that person. And so like almost by necessity, I was like, well, I'll just go to the microphone and here's what I think, you know, it should sound like basically if we ever got somebody who could actually sing you know, and that's what I was doing. So it was out of a kind of necessity, but I always, I always, I always was a reluctant front man um, and kind of just grew into it because it was, there was no one else to do it. Well, let me, I mean, that's, that's a, that leads to a great question, which is, which is, do you, what, when did you become aware that you were able to sing? Like, were you singing in church, uh, like having to go to this Catholic school and stuff like that? Like, was it something that came naturally to you? Were you singing in the household along to records and stuff? Like what, like did it become aware that you were able to pull it off? I was, I was, I never thought I was pulling it off. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> honest. But like I, I, but what gave me permission to just do it was growing up on bands like, you know, cap and jazz or some of like the DC hardcore where these weren't perfectly polished singers. You know what I mean? And so they kind of gave me permission to just go for it. You know, like, um, it's, these these weren't like textbook like great singers that i grew up on and so i was like well if they if they don't need to be perfect i don't need to be perfect and so Mm. which is so great because i felt like if i had felt the pressure to be perfect i don't think i would have found myself behind a microphone and i think i became i became a singer but i was not a singer like out out the front out the gate you know what i mean i became someone who figured out how to do it again kind of out of of necessity i was kind of like oh shit like People liked that song. Now we got to record it. Oh shit! Now I got to record it, and they got to, and now they want to be played over and over again. You know what I mean? And I was like, I better figure out how to do this, you know. And that's when I kind of started to figure out how to sing a little bit, but all, but all self-taught, you know, just like trying to just get through it all. But I never thought of myself as a good singer. I don't think anybody that you talk to from that time in my life would call me a good singer. <laughs> they would just call me a singer. You know what I mean? But people loved me for what I was doing. You know what I mean? And they loved the band and they loved the emotion that we put into it. But it was never like, it would never be like, oh, Tim's a great singer, you know? And then I think later on in life, I kind of figured out how to sing in key and how to like, you know, just do everything a little bit better. Well, I revisited the, uh, 
before doing this interview, I revisited some of the songs from like the Baxter Seven Inch and stuff, and like oh, you sorry. can <laughs> tell it's 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 <laughs> it ain't bad, uh, but <laughs> it's 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 cool because it's so clearly you, but mm-hmm. there is that timidness in how you're hitting notes and stuff, but like right. it's you can hear that it's there and that like you're mm-hmm. able to you know like you can see the um the journey that your voice has gone on and it's it's really mm. cool to hear it almost you know it has that it sounds like you but through like a you know desperate emotive sort of like you know that early version of like you know what would even be like screamo type stuff that sounds oh, like yeah. it could have been mixed in there i don't know if you were into that stuff at all at the time but oh, like, absolutely yeah like yeah like the early like frail sort of like you know mm-hmm. emo hardcore stuff um but yeah, yeah like i, I go for it i was gonna say like yeah those bands were i mean like i live in a town that had happened to have a knights of columbus hall that bands would roll through like i I literally stumbled into an angel hair show while skateboarding around around my town you know what i mean which is i just i live outside of chicago it's like i didn't know what angel hair was but i was like i hear music down the street let's go see what it is and it's like oh it's angel hair and the yamos playing a show somewhere you know like this is crazy and cap and jazz, you know, and Tim Kinsella in a tracksuit, you know, in a trumpet, you know, and shit. And so like I fell into a lot of that stuff. And it, like my singing early on was kind of like it's probably like when you watch a National Geographic video of like a giraffe being born, you know what I mean? It just dropping <laughs> to the ground and trying to stumble around, you know. So like those Baxter records was like me just stumbling around vocally. But I had this kind of confidence, you know, that I think punk rock gave me that I was like, I don't care what I sound like. I don't care if I'm gonna be in tune or like in key or imperfect or whatever punk rock gave me this confidence those bands that like we both mentioned gave me that confidence and it also gave me this armor of like i don't give a shit what you think of me you know what i mean like that's what this whole genre has taught me like i'm i don't care so much about what you're gonna say about what i'm doing i'm actually just having so much fun doing it with my friends i don't even care if you come to the show you know what i mean like when we were played in the basement with each other I was getting I get just I was getting just as much out of that as I was like at a show. We were having so much fun. Baxter was such this really cool organic like you know music experiment. We were like the being a band and playing a show was almost an afterthought, you know, which we eventually right. kicked ourselves out of the basement and to play shows, but you know, if you ever if you found us in like 1995 in my parents' basement, we were just covered in sweat rocking out as if we were playing a stadium you know you would have walked into the basement and watched us like writhing around on the ground like freaking out for nobody you know what i mean like yeah and that was made and talk, if you talk to neil it's the same way we still talk about those days and just how much fun it was and we would just play a song for 10 minutes because why we didn't want to stop you know yeah it's the purest form it's it's true it really it's it's really so was. pure and uh and also i mean yo as long as you're floating around the note you're good <laughs> That's no. what, yeah. I think the reason that we that we were accepted at all is I must have been somewhere close to it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you're, in there. you're in the ballpark. Um, yeah. I noticed that uh, that you all the Baxter stuff was recorded with a gentleman named Mike. G- is it Giampa? Yeah, Giampa. Yeah, we just called him Giampa. Yeah, Giampa. And uh, it was all at a spot called Scientific Studios, which. Uh, and I saw he had record. He did done stuff for a lot of Chicago bands. I saw he'd done stuff for Lawrence Arms and and uh, recorded maybe some Alkaline Trio stuff at some point. Um, how did was that your first recording experience? Like like maybe at a studio going to him? Yeah, like oh, Mike Yampa. Um, we were friends with some people at a, at, a, at a different high school, 
and they knew about Giampa and they knew we had a studio and it was the only studio we'd ever even heard of around here. You know, like, like we, it was the only studio we were aware of the only person we knew that for like 500 bucks, he would like record your demo. And he was kind of like a, like a, a hair, a hair metal kind of guy. You know what I mean? Just okay. like coming out of that era, shredder of a guitar player. He, he lived in this very illegal storefront where he had like, you know, a futon and his girlfriend and like a little Pomeranian. And then, but he had a bunch of gear in there and was like secretly a genius at this stuff. You know what I mean? Um, but somehow I had some connections with like all these high school kids. So like we would kept coming to him and he was the only guy we knew to make music. And so the first thing we did was these six songs that we just called the red tape because when we got it printed at the place, all they had were red tapes left. And so it came out of this like translucent red tape. Yeah. And so like the production is almost kind of like for for doing it in two days, you know what I mean? For five hundred bucks, it's kinda it's kinda got this sheen on it. But mostly because Giampa was kinda like he was a hair metal guy, you know, and that's kind of how he knew how to do things. Um go ahead. No, I was gonna say, uh did you take to the recording experience? Like, did you enjoy it? Was it scary? Like, what do you remember from from it if you remember I know, so long ago? Just like hearing yourself on a like coming back to a speaker was just this most amazing thing in the world it was like holy shit these are the same speakers that like are playing me everything from the descendants to nirvana you know what i mean like yeah. this is this is crazy like that was i remember just being so excited he was like he had a control room on a, uh on the first floor and then the basement was the live room and we would just make takes and then we would just like rush up these stairs like tripping over ourselves to go hear the take you know and like it was just like mind blown it was it was so cool um, and then because Baxter had discovered Giampa, I think that's probably why you find Lawrence arm stuff because Neil knew Giampa and he knew he would do it, you know, a good job for not a lot of money. Um, and then he was the only guy we knew, you know what I mean? We were, we were a band around in and around Chicago, but it was a long time before we were like of Chicago, like before we got into like, we would go see shows, but our band was never considered like a band that you'd put on those shows until later in our career. And then eventually we started opening up for Strife and we opened up for um, Good Riddance and opened up for Voices Fire and opened up for um, Slapsticks like last shows, you know, and when back when the Broadways and pre-Lawrence Arm stuff was happening, you know, we were doing some of those. We were playing with like Elliot when they were coming out, you know, and we, we got wow. thrown on a lot of those sh those shows. So we were kind of your staple like Chicago opener for a lot of, you know, fireside bowl shows for a while towards the end of our world. And which is how I met, you know, Joe and, and that kind of thing. And Giampa, regrettably, I just kind of lost touch with, this is like a pre-internet world. Um, and he actually passed away at some point in the last, like, you know, five years or whatever. I think, Oh no! I want to say he, I want to say he, he, he went and did a lot of work for a bunch of churches, but then he was really sick. And like, I regret it because I never saw him after those days. I never knew that if he knew that I went on to do rise against, you know what I mean? I don't know if like, like that he know knew that like it was my first recordings I ever did was with him. He was my first like producer of sorts, you know, but I've only found out much later, like, cause he wasn't in our, anywhere in our world. So even when I found out he had passed away, I found out like five years later. I didn't even like, cause it right. was, you know, and, and I'm not on Facebook. I don't know all those things either. So I don't like know, I don't find out about a lot of stuff till later too. So I regret not like, I would love to just sit down and like, you know, have talked to him like, dude, check it out like i'm in this band now you know what i mean like right look what we look what we started in like your basement like when i was 15 you know and like look where it is now i would have he's one of those guys i would have loved to have shown him like a rise against record or brought him to a show right it's it's cool how those are the people that regardless of how well you know your career has gone and like 
mm-hmm. though you're accepted by so many different people, you know, whether it's your own fans or like radio DJs or writers right. or whatever it is yeah, the, yeah. at the core of it, the people you really want to impress and get acceptance from are those people from the early days that were not so important to how it was when you were coming up. Absolutely. Like, see, this is what I was going for. This is what I was trying to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, and, you, and especially if they believed in you. And it's like, you know, look at it. Thank you for supporting what we were doing or seeing something in, like, in me, you know, because that helped me keep doing it, you know? So, yeah, he's one of those guys. Awesome. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, I'm just so fascinated by this. I, I don't know that I fully realized that you were, you shortly played in uh, Arma Angulus. Uh, yeah, which is wild. Is that how you've always? Is that how you say the name Angulus? I've never uh, actually known. I, I, it was sure. when I was in. It was Ar- Arma Angelus. It meant like Angelus. weapons. Weapons of the angels is what okay uh, it meant. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, and that was like. It's, go ahead. I go. I say like, I don't remember exactly where I was in my life at that, but I think Baxter had dissolved. Yeah. Rise Against had, had not yet started. Yeah. And I was just in between bands. I was kind of like doing merch for some friends' bands. You know, Neil had a cool band called Quattro and then Gaetti. And me and Neil lived together. And so I'd always go along in the van with them and hang out. And I missed playing music. And then Arm Angelus was like the the, the the vegan straight edge metal PC hardcore scene in Chicago, yeah. which I was like definitely a part of. You know what I mean? Like I was like in that world. I loved going to see Turmoil and Earth Crisis and Integrity and Snapcase and Strife. and But also bands like catharsis and creationist crucifixion and race trader was big in chicago at the right. time arma was like those guys like pete and andy hurley um and sticks the drummer and dan benai from race trader uh they were all way into like that creationist crucifixion like abnegation like that kind of like like ultra survivalist like <laughs> you know hardcore kind of sh- you know what i mean like that yeah, kind of yeah, music yeah. For anybody who knows it and it's and it's very techy and blast yeah. speedy you know yeah. um it wasn't 100 my thing and so like i always try to qualify when i say i played bass in this band i was like one of five bass players in this band right. like they had a road they had a rotating thing and at one point my number came up you know and so <laughs> i was playing bass with them for a while i did record one album with them and actually even sing on that album oh no uh, way yeah they're, it's buried in there but if people want to look for it like i remember pete being like he call me, he would call me Baxter because everyone called me Tim Baxter. But then he's like Baxter, do like your singing, like your singing thing on this song, because <laughs> nobody sang in the hardcore scene. You know what I mean? Like everyone right. just screamed, and I was the only guy who actually could somewhat sing. And he'd be like, "Dude, what if you just sang here?" And so Pete had words, and I sang his words on a couple of different breaks in the Arma songs. But we played some shows, and we yeah. had some fun, you know. And it was really did the oh, go ahead. they only did that one LP, the the where sleeplessness is rest from nightmares or whatever is it that lp that you would have sang on well they did that but they also did something called the grave end of the shovel which may have been oh i don't know if that, okay i don't know it's like an that, ep i, I, I don't, think maybe it's like an ep yeah 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 i'm not sure uh, exactly but i loved those guys and we had fun and i loved traveling around we in a van with them um i mean it's it's here and there it's just such a trip. I mean, like for, for listeners who maybe haven't caught on, it's like, that's, that's like Pete Wentz and Andy Hurley from fallout boys band, yeah. obviously before fallout boys started. So it's just crazy trip to totally. like, there was this metal core or like this totally. very metal, hardcore metallic, hardcore, like yeah, vegan yeah. straight edge band that the three of you were at one point all in together, which is just totally. 
Well, crazy. actually, I should correct. I should correct myself too. I I roped Andy into this. He wasn't in it. He was in Race Trader at the time. Oh right. And then we had a drummer that we that his name was Tim, that that he played drums in it. But yeah, it was me and Pete, and then they were doing it, and it was like it was a lot of fun. It definitely wasn't my thing musically. You know what I mean? I could tell. It was like I was kind of like I was holding a place for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. But at the same time, Pete was. Uh, formulating what would become fallout boy you know at the time you know because he'd be like sure. we, you know we'd be in a van somewhere he'd be just like, just like he's like baxter what are you gonna do like what's going on like are you still playing with anybody else and i'm like i don't know like joe from 88 you know is talking about some songs he wrote and i want to try to sing over that he's like oh yeah that'd be good you should do that and i'm like what are you gonna do he's like man i met this kid from this band called patterson he can sing his ass off we're gonna go out there and just play like save the day newfound glory type stuff which was really big at the time. And yeah. we we're just going to go this pop punk route. And we're going to become the biggest band on the planet. And I was like, yeah, sure. Sure. You are Pete. <laughs> like go for it. And so he was, he always had a couple different things going. So he had Arma going, but it was already kind of starting to dissolve. I think at that point, and, but he already was talking about, you know, what fallout boy was, right. was going to be. And it's funny, those guys, if you talk to fallout boy, they credit me with naming their band which I don't have a lot of recollection of this. I did not come up with the name Fall Out Boy, but they were yeah. trying to decide between, I think it was either Project Rocket or Fall Out Boy, and they could not decide between the two names. Um, and so they were playing shows under no name for a while, you know, uh -huh. just like nothing. And I I heard wrong. I heard that they were Fall Out Boy. And so I was playing in a band called, I think it was, I think, well, it might have been Rise Against at that point. And their band opened the show and I just was on stage and I'm like, hey, I want to thank Fallout Boy for you know playing this show tonight and everyone go check out Fallout Boy and go get yourself a Fallout Boy t-shirt or whatever, blah, blah. And they were kind of like, no, that's not our name. We're not a band, you know? And I, but yeah. like, I didn't know that. And I think at that point they were like, well, shit, I guess we're Fallout Boy because Tim just told everyone we were Fallout Boy. <laughs> that's awesome. Do you? Yeah, uh, I, didn't I, mean, know over that, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, like oh, over the years, like... Uh, had you have you kept much in touch with those guys over the years like i'm sure you've run it run into each other at festivals over the time and and all that sort of yeah. stuff not as many as you think but i still talk to pete yeah we text like you know every like month or so just kind of oh, checking. Cool. i was just i was talking to him because they were in europe around the same time we were in europe uh because they were doing the hella mega tour with uh, oh, green right. day and weezer so we were just talking about just being back in europe and and, and that kind of thing so yeah we st we still uh communicate or see each other every once in a while so and when well, we just it, opened up for Fall Boy at the oh. at Wrigley Field just before the pandemic. They played like their biggest show ever, Wrigley Field, Chicago. Damn. It was like us and Fall Boy. I think holy shit. Yeah. Oh, maybe Machine Gun Kelly too. I want to say, but it was before Machine Gun Kelly got really big. So because he's so like he opened the show, I think, and then we played before right. Fall Boy. And that was that was pretty cool. It was just like one of those moments where like. And those guys are massive and they do a lot of big shows, but you could tell that that show specifically meant something to them. And they went out of their way to bring us along as like a, a Chicago solidarity yeah. thing. And like, so that was cool. Cause the guys that, you know, we were guys that would have been kicked out of Wrigley field. And now here we are like <laughs> both like headlining, it, you know, and then to make it even better, a good friend of ours named Scott Anna was the live nation rep. And Scott Anna was the guy taking the door money at the fireside bowl for all those years. And now he was wow. like the guy and he was the guy running that Wrigley show. So it was like so crazy. It was like it was like the the inmates running the asylum kind of thing, just having it all. It was just such a big moment.
That's incredible. That's incredible. It really was, yeah. Um, I think it's funny that uh, it probably. <laughs> I was laughing because uh, I saw there's a Killing Tree EP called "Bury Me at Makeout Creek," which is a Simpsons reference, and then Fall Out Boy yeah. is obviously a Simpsons reference. So of course, that's. Yeah. I'm just gonna say that's where your brain went for nailing them with, <laughs> with that yeah i guess you're right there was too much too much simpsons happening and then and then mitski named her record yeah i was gonna Creek. i was gonna bring that up it's like man stole no, your thunder I'm, and i'm all i'm all for it because hers will get more eyeballs so it's like <laughs> that's a great that's a great name for a record someone needs to broadcast it <laughs> a thousand percent uh so we can get into to some rise against stuff um so that band started so i saw it's funny i tried to look up the the ep so the band wasn't originally called rise against it was uh something transistor right what is it yeah we had a, a lot of trouble deciding on name we've been a band for almost a year just like rehearsing like in the basement kind of woodshedding and then we thought of the name transistor revolt i was kind of inspired by like the 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 network movie i was thinking about okay. like everybody watching their tvs and like that howard beale that was name like his voice coming out I was like, oh, Transistor Revolt, that'd be great. And then Fat Mike um, wanted to sign us, but he's like, but that's a terrible name for a band. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, we're like, okay, Mike, like we're we're not married to it, and we've only played yeah. a couple of shows under it. So what do you suggest we name our band? And he goes, I got a couple options. We're like, all right, cool, lay it on us. He goes, okay, Chicago Tar. <laughs> And we're like, well, first of all, there's already a band called Tar. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I think they were from Chicago, so not oh, that man. one. What's yeah. what's what's your other option? And he goes, Jimmy Crack Corn and the I Don't Cares. Oh my god! <laughs> How does he think those are possibly better than Jesus? <laughs> I remember this was in my first time meeting him too, and I was really nervous to meet him. Yeah, he knows Fat Mike from No Effects. You know, he's signing my band. He doesn't know me. He had a lot of yeah. questions about me because I was kind of new to the whole. I hadn't, I didn't really have an established reputation as a singer or someone who could tour. And then he said those yeah. things, and I was like, "Who the hell is this guy?" <laughs> right, right. But that's my, that'll be Mike forever, though. It's like when when his great ideas are just brilliant. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then the ones that miss, like, are also just maybe equally <laughs> dismal. Yeah. And so we're like, "All right, we're not going to take any of your suggestions. We're going to go back to our drawing board." And so and on this list, somebody had written down Rise Against on our list of names. I don't even know who it was. Nobody remembers who it was. And it was kind of just shocking to us like that we made it to the year 2000 and no punk band had named their band Rise Against yet. Totally. You know I mean? Yeah. And like it's it sounded closest to Born Against, you know? Right. But it was like, let's, you know, it was almost a desperation. It was like, "You know what? Let's just be Rise Against." Yeah. And that's what's going to so we became Rise Against. And in some ways we kind of grew into that name a little bit, you know, and like it kind of helped us figure out our thing. Absolutely. And then th- with that first record, I uh you went to a gentleman named uh Mass how do you help me with his last name? Master Gini. Churgini. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what what was the how how did he come your way? What was the story there? Yeah. So Mass ran a studio called Sonic Iguana. And so uh-huh. Sonic Iguana did a lot of pop punk in like the 90s. So that would have been like Mass was in the band Squirt Gun. Um, oh, okay. But he would have recorded like Smoking Popes. You know, he did a lot. I think he did stuff for Idiot Fingers Louie, which is how Joe and Dan knew him. Oh, right. I saw he um, did like Born to Quit. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, yeah. Or, All right. One of those. Uh, yeah. One of those. Or Get Fired. I think maybe Get Fired. Maybe they um, get fired. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, so he, he was way into that pop punk world and a lot of band. Teen Idols were going to him at that point. He okay. actually did Anti Flags Underground Network, 
around the oh, same wow. time we did our, our thing. Yeah. So yeah, he was kind of the go-to guy for a minute there. So a really brilliant dude. And he had a studio in West Lafayette, Indiana, which is like where Purdue University is. And also where Axl Rose was born, incidentally. Oh, okay. Um, and so we were just in his little studio, Sonic Guana, and that's where we did the first record. Nice. Was that... Uh... That being the first record on Fat and all of that, like, did you have a lot of uh, expectation put on yourself or were the songs pretty flushed out? Like, how prepared were you guys when you went into the studio oh, man. for that? At that point, we were so prepared. We had, Rise Against had something like 18 months of false starts. You know what I mean? Like, we actually were signed to Fat before we played our first show. Like, we wow. just like we just could not get out of the basement. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like a, n- a number of long, boring stories have to do with like band members and people coming in and out even before we left the basement, you know? So we could not get like a stable lineup together um, for a long time or we had somebody like had a surgery and so they were out for like five months and that just put us on hold, which is kind of when I started The Killing Tree just because I wanted to do something with my friends. And so we uh, we were so polished at that point we'd already made that demo you know what i mean the songs were done and done and done you know and so going to the studio is just a matter of putting it all down it still took kind of a ridiculously long time but um in the end yeah we came in very prepared awesome i remember when that record came out too because i had just started working at a record store in burbank and oh cool like you know we would always get promos especially from beth from fat and all of that so that the record cover being very striking and right. then all of a sudden people just started buying it and buying it and buying it. And I remember the hype that came when the revolutions record was coming out. And then for that, when you guys went to Bill Stevenson, was that something that you guys was like a dream situation? Was it proposed by, by Mike? Like was his relationship with Mike, what made that happen? Like how did, cause obviously your band went on to make the majority of your records with Bill Stevenson. Yeah. So like, talk to me about that first meeting. I'm embarrassed to say that Bill was probably our second or third choice because a couple things had fallen through. I want to say oh, we were okay. initially we were initially trying to make it with Brian McTurnan. Or no, mm. I think I think the first person we called was Steve Evitz because we had heard like I think it was like I was a big fan of that turmoil record he did and he had done a sick of it all record that was amazing. And then he wasn't available. So we went to Brian McTurnan and I think through a series of miscommunications, because when you're a band that has no manager and no one's really in charge, you know what I mean? Like things go wrong. Right. I think we all thought that we had a confirmed like date with him. You know what I mean? And yeah. as it got closer to that date, he was like, whoa, we never confirmed that you guys. Like I didn't, <laughs> I'm busy. And we're like, ah, oh, shit, you know, so probably our fault. And then we're like, oh, well now the date's approaching where we have time. We got to call somebody. And we're like, let's call Bill. And like, we knew Joe had met Bill from his 88 days, you know, and, and the only reason he wasn't our first choice, I think was because he had done so much of like the fat wreck type stuff, you know, that we were at that point, our, our mission was to, um, not let the fat wreck world define us. You know what I mean? We were super, yeah, you want to stand on your own. We want to stand on our own. Like, and they did so much for us. You know what I mean? Like we, um, the fat wreck is the reason that I'm talking to you today. And they were so supportive but we didn't want to get painted with that brush. You know what I mean? Like, cause we knew our band was not just like, um, not part of that fat wreck sound, which I love the fat wreck sound. You know what I mean? But I knew that wasn't right. a part of our identity and that we thought maybe going to the blasting room might reinforce that sound instead of highlight our, our, our differences in that sound. But right. we went to bill and you know, we couldn't have been more wrong. Like bill was great. And he, and he, he brought like a lot out of our band and that's when our band shined. Like that was the first, our piano is the first time it felt like, like this is Rise Against. This is the four of us. This is 
our identity. This is who we are, you know, and Bill fell in love with us. We fell in love with Bill and we go on to make six of our nine albums with him. Right. And then, so with the follow-up to that record, it's like, you know, you guys get signed to Geffen. Um, I feel like you guys really lucked out by being on the very edge of like that early 2000s swarm of major labels signing punk bands. Cause I feel like by 2005, I feel like major labels realize like, Oh, we're hemorrhaging money because none of these bands are actually selling as many records as we thought. Like, um, so, you know, you guys, you guys got in on the end there and you guys went to Garth Richardson who had done a Mm -hmm. lot of big, like rock records. Um, Mm -hmm. do you feel like, there was good chemistry there between the two of you like did did he understand what the band was going for because obviously you guys have like swing life away on there and like you Mm -hmm. know some huge hits that came from that record um Mm -hmm. how was that experience for you overall uh i love garth he didn't understand our band you know what i mean and yeah garth had done big rock records he also recorded the first rage record he recorded built to last by sick of it all and he had at that point he had done a from autumn to ashes record too and so we were like oh so garth will understand our world a little bit and in the end it was like he didn't totally understand who we were we were still trying to figure out who we were too you know right and so a lot of things got kind of lost in translation on that on that album and like thankfully it went on to become like a successful album with a couple of strong songs on it and what's interesting about that album too is like the two singles that drove that album were two previously released comp songs oh interesting. so like yeah, what I just I try to tell people this all the time. Like, give it all was already out on a Rock Against Bush uh, compilation, and Swing Life Away had already been out on a Fearless Records Punk Goes Acoustic compilation. So these were previously released songs that we actually had to be talked into putting on the album. You know, were they re-recorded? Uh, they were re-recorded. Yeah, both yeah. of them. And like, and the Siren Song version is is better than the Rock Against Bush, and I think the Swing Life Away version on Siren Song is better the comp thing but it was like swing life away was not going to go on the record and then our a and r guy um ron handler ron had signed like sparta and he signed um papa roach and like power man 5000 bands like that he was he heard the comp song and he was like wait what's this swing life away song i'm like oh it's just this punk goes acoustic thing we didn't have an acoustic song so i wrote one and it's like no this is great you should re-record it for the record and so we did um and so that record's success was like predicated on these two previously released songs, which like was amazing for us to kind of watch happen. Like, wait, we already released these songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, now given to this, you know, this giant label, you know, they turned us like into like rock stars overnight. So. Right. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, right. And then with suffering the witness, it's like, uh, you guys obviously ended up going back to Bill Stevenson. Um, yeah. Was there, any sort of pushback from the major label to like go to not like this polished rock producer, but to go to, you know, the, the punk guy in fucking Fort, Fort Collins, Colorado. Like, were, right. they, were they into it? Were they trusting you guys? Like, you know, I think that we benefited from a few things. Like things were so shuffling around and the DreamWorks get DreamWorks had folded. And so we were now on Geffen and in the universal umbrella, things were so getting shuffled around. We lost our A&R guy. I think we we half got forgotten about at that label, you know, which sort of was to our benefit because we just got away with shit, you know? Yeah, sure. And then the other half is we had a really great manager. Her name was Missy Worth. 
and she like fought really hard for us to do whatever the hell we wanted to do and so you know like i'll tell you this much like when i was 26 years old i signed a five album deal with universal music we did all five of those albums and we never submitted a demo to them before they got the final copy wow like yes there was no meddling with anything the records that you hear are exactly what we did the producers we went to were our choice the mixers we went to were our choice they really left us alone we had you know that five all five of those albums we had this really ideal uh career path where we got to do whatever we wanted to do and i think by the time we were on our second or third record with them they just kind of trusted us you know what i mean they're like well this band barely spends any of our money you know <laughs> and they sell records you know right and they don't ask to get flown around on private jets or like you know do like all this stuff like they tour on their own we've never taken a dime of like tour promotion support type stuff you know we always did shit on our own so we were a really cheap investment that paid off for like a big label you know and so that gave us a little bit of immunity from uh interference i guess I think that's, I mean, that speaks to what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode to where it's like, when you come from a DIY world, when those things get offered to you, your brain goes, wait, but that means we're going to owe that and we don't need yeah. that. So why don't we right. just keep things cheap? It's like, we can, we know we can function doing right. what just totally. we know how to do. It's like, it's, I know it's, it's such an advantage um, when you it, have that it really sort is. Of punk rock mindset built in. Um, Cause nothing's for free, you know, like no, some, yeah. comes with, it comes with, it comes with something. It absolutely 1000% does. Um, well, sh I mean, like I was saying, like we could go, we, we could probably spend a lot of time going through all your records, but I appreciate <laughs> You know, this, uh, the, the time you've given me today. Um, I'll hit you with the last question and maybe just some, somewhere down the line, I'm not stopping the show anytime soon. We can, we can pick back up uh, in a, mm -hmm. in a year or so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give so, a gap and it. then we'll see where we're both at. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, let me ask you, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? When was the first time I felt like I was doing the thing that I was working so hard towards? Um, you know, I guess it would have to be like the first time. You mean like the first time? Uh, it really was when Rise Against started connecting with like our audience you know um and i i can think of a specific moment too because we 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 had the band we were doing okay in chicago and we started touring and getting in a van and playing pretty good shows outside of chicago and i remember getting to southern california and playing uh the shea cafe back in the day and I remember there just being people crawling all over the place, right? Like getting in. And I just remember looking and like being like, who, who is playing after us? Like what is happening? You know? Cause like nowadays you have a lot of like data to tell you how your band's doing, you know? Right. Or if your band was doing really well in like Iceland right now, you might have some data to, to like support that. Back then, you're literally just showing up in a van with no cell phones to a to venue, to an address and a, and a phone number and a time. And you're like, I hope somebody shows up, <laughs> you know? And I remember like people like all over Shea Cafe and like, we're like, I don't know what's going on here, man, but this is crazy. 
and then we started setting up our gear and people started coming in and getting really close to us. You know what I mean? Like forming this wall around us where it almost became difficult to set up our gear. And we're like, what is happening right now? You know, right. we had, we kind of had some stinkers of some shows the whole way from Chicago to California. And, and we played our first song and this crowd pretty much like steamrolled all our gear <laughs> just like <laughs> knocked everybody over like like the guitars the pedals the drums that like i'm falling into people and i was like oh my god yeah they're here to see us they're yeah. here to see us then they know every single word of this album that we just put out like holy crap this is this is amazing and then it was just a wave that you just got on and you just wrote it you know it was like this is beautiful this is perfect i can't believe people are connecting with these songs and I don't know exactly why they are, but I'm just happy that they are. Absolutely. And going forward, I'm going to be getting hit in the mouth with my microphone um, for a long time. All, <laughs> I can't even imagine. All, did I tell you, all my teeth are fake are here. Is that true? From, yeah. from shows just like that. Just like, especially cause I Man. play guitar sometimes. And so uh -huh. like when I'm playing guitar, I can't stop the microphone from getting shoved into my teeth when you're just playing on the ground, you know? It That's stops. what I'm saying. <laughs> Dude, it's crazy. Oh. These are all, they were all just get chipped off. I remember going to my oh. dentist after every tour with like half a tooth and he finally like, what exactly are you doing? And I was like, well, I sing for this band. We play on floors mostly and people, people bump into me. And he's like, what, you know, you're spending a lot of money here. How about we just wait till this whole band thing is over and then we come back and fix your teeth for good? <laughs> wow. Damn. Right. Damn. So I had Damn. no choice but to get on a bigger stage to save my teeth. Yeah. <laughs> that was the goal the whole time. It was it was all uh it was all inspired right. by dental work. Yeah. Of course. Uh, sp speaking of bigger stages, how about our boys and the architects like taking over the Jesus world right now? Christ, yeah. Oh. I saw S Sam came out to our Brighton show. It was so good to see him. But oh every God. time I see him, he just looks fancier and fancier. He's like getting <laughs> shot out by he's getting shot out by Elton John. I'm just like, oh, dude, dude. it's those yeah. British kids, man. When they get yeah. they, they get a little bigger. <laughs> I, had, he, I love had, that like, band. His I, boots look like uh look. I mean, he's like the most staunch vegan dude ever. But I was gonna say, totally, like, yeah, he had like yeah. snakeskin looking boots on. I was like, man, you are, <laughs> you are so that's, fancy. That's so funny. We toured with the Gallows back in the day, right, as they were getting like signing to Warner Bros. Or whatever. And I remember, I, I remember thinking the same thing. Like, all their shoes got real fancy. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first I think it's a Brit. I think it's a British thing. Yeah, the American punks aren't getting nicer shoes. You know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get this on on record before uh, before we wrap up because I, I really yeah. feel the need to express it to you. We're like. You know, we when you guys asked us to tour with you the first time, you were so nice to take us out twice, once in the US, once in Europe. And that tour mm -hmm. with the architects, <clears throat> I had a few takeaways. One, I was like, you know, I, I knew of your band, obviously, from like working at the record store, knowing you were from on Fat Records and where and the journey you guys had taken to become this big rock band. I mean, when we were opening for you guys in Europe, that was such a surreal experience for us because we were playing like, you know, 10,000 plus fucking arenas you know and it was like so crazy and we were you know when we got offered that tour we're like there's no way we're turning this down this is like this is why you be in a band for experiences like this like we'll like mm. when would we ever get an opportunity to do something like this let's do it and um you know we didn't know any of you guys personally or anything like that and i always tell people to this day it's like uh you know when people talk about like oh what was it like touring with rise against i say like those are like four of the punkest dudes that we've ever toured with like not that it matters, but like the fact that like, you know, 
three to four, you were like still like vegan straight edge. Like the fact that that's still <laughs> a thing. Like I remember right. you had like a from ashes, right? Or his hero is gone, uh, patch on oh, your yeah. fucking guitar strap. I was like, right. that's super sick. But, uh, but aside from that stuff and also of course, how nice and kind you treated all of us and made sure we were all taken care of. But like, I remember you guys had like the table of pamphlets um, run by, you know, like these European, like anarchist kids that were like pamphlets about, you know, a- uh, animal rights and, and animal liberation and, and all mm-hmm. of this sort of stuff next to your merch area. And that you made sure that the, you know, travel and accommodation was like taken care of for these kids to be there at every single show. It just spoke such volumes to me and us that like, you guys really do, you know, practice what you preach it's like you can get up on stage and say all that stuff and like you know have written all these songs about it but like you could just move on and get a check and you know keep doing what you're doing but like you guys actually do genuinely care about that stuff and i feel like it's it'd be pretty easy for bands to sort of start to dissolve away from their message just because you know they're they're living comfortably and things like that and i've always just really appreciated that uh that rides against really does care about what they're singing about and it's uh it's inspiring to see how you guys have really um carried that message and stand by it throughout all these years so that's my ramble at you well thank you i'm terrible at accepting compliments but i appreciate all of that (laughs) and we had so much fun touring uh with you guys that was you know it was i i see a lot of ourselves in your band i saw a lot of ourselves in architects like i root for you guys all the time like i want your band and i want architects to be bigger than rise against you know what i mean and taking us out on the road in years from now like that's what <laughs> that's what that's what would make me happy because that's like you know even what that's what sick of it all did for us you know what i mean when they first took us to europe you know what i mean like we i learned so much from those guys i'm so grateful to that band to the the fan base they opened us up to they informed a lot of what i do like to this day and so like i get so excited to take out bands i love like your band and architects out on the road and i get so excited to see you guys still thriving and still you know killing it and making just even better records than you ever made like with each one like it's so exciting to me too so yeah the the gratitude goes both ways you're awesome appreciate it thank you so much for your time tim hey my pleasure jeremy And that is our show. Thank you so much to Tim for coming on and thank you for listening. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify, on Apple, wherever you're listening to this, please do that. It helps the show. Also, leaving a positive rating and review, it means a lot. That's why everyone asks you to do it. Okay, take care of yourself and I'll see you next Wednesday.